first thing people hear should be us saying, "Let's uh, let's decide what the show is." But we're still, I guess, on we air. The slate. Uh, uh, you yeah, want a slate? Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, let's slate. All right. Three, two, two one. We could also uh, leave it in for a sneak peek at what slating sounds like for us. Yeah, yeah, it's very bizarre. Uh, it's hard to do with no visual. It's odd. Like it's not a slate. It's odd. It's. Odd. I wonder what other podcasters do. <clears throat> I've been on other podcasts that have done remote stuff. They do a very similar thing. Yeah. I think ours is better. Because <laughs> <laughs> we clap. Because we clap. It's a sharp sound. We count. We count together. Uh, all right. Um, yeah, like, because people also like our deep dives being long and casual, so... I could see us leaving what we're saying right now in, but should we get started? Should we decide what the show is? I want to just because this is as far as this show goes, Mm -hmm. uh, which we have yet to do yet, uh, record an episode of, this is a dense one. It's as dense as it gets in terms of movies. Yeah. Other than maybe the stand miniseries. That's fair. That's fair. That's also a lot more time with the material yes but i do stands. we'll definitely do that as an episode as the whole stand mm-hmm. miniseries we'll just need to commit some more time to watching it um yeah yeah all right well why don't you welcome everyone and say yeah. hi and shit well if we're already rolling <laughs> i think we should leave this in but you should still artificially welcome there you go everybody <laughs> to the new show this is the new show it's the deep dive show mm-hmm. if you watch coen brothers brothers or you listen to Cone's. I always it. make that mistake. Shut up. If you listened to Cone Brothers Brothers and liked Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson, the two hosts of this show, uh, discuss at length, uh, you know, the symbology, the events, what tickled us, what we didn't like about a certain film. Well, this one's we're doing a new one, and this one is even bigger, possibly because it's uh, it deals with the entire catalog or as many as we want with uh, Stephen King's adaptations to film. This is Kings of King. Kings of King. Yes. Stephen King, the most adapted English language author of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge in the zeitgeist. I'm Michael Swaim. The other voice was Abe Epperson. If you're joining us first, cause you're interested in Stephen King shit. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're joining us cause of uh, Coen brothers, brothers, I you probably already know the deal, but I wanted to uh, explain explain ourselves for people who might be joining us for the first time. Things this show will be and will not be. Uh, what this show is not is a book club, a Stephen King book club. We will not be reading the books. I have, I I think Abe, I imagine as well. Each of us has read various Stephen King works throughout our lives, and we're free, of course, to bring that knowledge to bear when it adds interest to the pod, but we will not necessarily hold ourselves to having read the book that the thing is based on or dissecting the differences or whether the story or book was better than the film or what, or blah, 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 blah. Um, we are interacting firmly with filmed material, which is our preferred medium. The other thing I want to say before we get rolling that this will not be is a, an exhaustive, uh, list of trivia or behind the scenes information about whatever we're covering. 
because uh, I noticed some confusion about that in occasional responses to our last podcast. We find that what we do best is unpack and serve as essentially what would be a reading guide if it were a book club uh, of like close reading and symbology and filmmaking techniques and grammar and ways to enrich your experience with the film or unit of TV or what have you. So that's what this will be. If you heard uh, Coen Brothers Brothers, you already you already know what it's going to be. But as Abe said, the domain is anything that's based on anything Stephen King ever wrote. And we, unlike Coen Brothers Brothers, which went chronologically, we're going to feel free to jump around and get out our seats and jump around in the timeline <laughs> and cover... We're interested to see how this works when we cover things that are not stellar. Because the Coen brothers only made things that were stellar. And obviously Stephen King only has so much impact on the on the filmed versions. I don't I think it's very limited. I don't think he fucks with like yeah. people who adapt his stuff very much. Um so we're gonna have a wider variety of things that are good and things that are bad. But we decided to start with a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, so I, it's so funny to me that you're like, uh, we're not going to just read trivia. Uh, it, may, it occurs to me that you've been in a room for hours uh, researching The Shining and came to the conclusion that most people who like casually go into the hole that is knowledge about the movie and the making of and the behind the scenes of The Shining, mm -hmm. it is perhaps one of the most well-documented movies in the totality of cinema. That's where uh, I feel like... In a lot of the cases, Stephen King adaptations, the behind-the-scenes information has been covered to death. So we should talk mm -hmm. about like the story and the themes. And yeah, the I think that's yeah, that's what I like better too. And like, what makes it a strong, like, what makes it good relative to other movies? Like, why is he? Like, I want to uncrack personally my journey in this podcast is to figure out exactly what makes Stephen King tick, why his ideas have been so prevalent for ages and why he can just was had the yeah. ability, the uncanny ability and continues to do so to just create like very captivating horror tropes and uh, notify the viewer or the reader about how, how the, what the terror, what the central terror of his stories are. I think he's very effective at that. And that's why he's remade time and time again. I wanted to do this podcast based on his performance in uh, Night Riders, which we covered mm -hmm. on Frame Rate, and I was just yeah. like, "Who's As that the guy? guy? In the hoagie, hoagie yeah. guy? What's his deal? I gotta know more just about him." Just a hoagie. What's he screaming into? at some re uh, run fair yeah. nights? Deep <laughs> on small beans cut. Uh, but yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, I agree completely. And of course, while his main operating mode is like what makes you afraid fear is a primal is the primal human instinct i work within there are exceptions i know we'll cover shawshank at some time or mm -hmm. and stand by me will come up i'm sure and uh yeah i have the same question it's like it's more about us than about him uh what is it about us that resonates on a common human wavelength or at least exactly. our culture and our time and place wavelength that makes these stories why is he number one why why are these stories the types of stories we all like and we both love horror i think it's just a captivating conversation to have uh to like figure out what makes him tick and makes uh all of us tick i think that was well mm -hmm. said uh i think it'll create some conversations that we're like more discussing like what terrifies us 
and yeah. what's spooky. Uh, spooky stuff. Yeah. So let's stop talking about what we're going to talk about and talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. our, we are dividing this. I'm sorry, you guys. The spectrum system is dead. Uh, we have a new system. But our first segment, you'll, you'll find it. You'll come to n- know and love it as it unspools. Our first segment is called Under the Dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? Basically, this section is an elevator synopsis of the movie. Uh, yep. If you haven't seen it or just need a refresher, we'll real quickly go through the plot. Yeah, and I realized re-watching The Shining for the purposes of this episode that if you've seen the Simpsons parody of The Shining, you remember all the, all the cromulent details. Like, I was uh, watching the movie amazed how much it follows the plot of, so to speak, follows the plot of, the uh, right. Simpsons Treehouse of Horror parody. Or I was like, I forgot how much they were one to ones. Like, oh, yeah. the ghosts really do let him out of the. They like there's a scene the in the Simpsons area. one where they yeah. let him out of the pantry and they chastise him for doing a bad job. Uh, mm-hmm. The ghosts and I think you're doing a very bad job, <laughs> yeah, and that that's... is essentially the subtext of the real scene in The Shining. Is uh, Grady the murderer ghost is like. In so many words, the ghosts and I think you're doing a bad job. Yeah, and I think it's a testament to something uh, for the Simpsons and all their uh, comic efficiency mm-hmm. are able to translate uh, the entire plot of The Shining with like all those specific beats in addition to jokes because the plot of The Shining is very, very simple. Mm-hmm. It does not have a lot of... There's so much air in terms of like looks and uh, that's something we'll talk about a little bit more about like people's relation to each other, like conversations that are be ha- being had, not with words kind of stuff that is just like reinforcing the terror, reinforcing the situation of like whether you read this film as a cabin fever film or as a ghost film. It reinforces those kind of uh, emotional like terrors that mostly it's just a simple story where a guy, Jack Torrance, who is a writer, is taking a job at the Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains to be a winter caretaker because they can't get to the hotel. Or they, they, uh, it's not, not economically feasible to enough. keep the, yeah, because yeah, it's a 25 mile windy road to the hotel and they don't want to pay the city to clear it out. So the hotel yeah. closes during the winter storm season. And so he brings his, so he meets with them, he gets the job. Uh, he meets, uh, or he brings along Danny, his son, and his wife, Wendy. Uh, and there's some scenes about kind of introducing who those people are. A scene with the doctor and a scene, obviously, with uh, Jack talking to uh, the guy who's like, Ullman, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. leading them into the uh, to the outlook and giving them the keys to the hotel. Flash forward, they're now at the hotel. They've moved in. Uh and they're being like shown around the place as it's closing down and then everyone's gone. And then we have a basically a long montage of scenes that show uh, Jack's slow, um, I guess, mental deterioration uh, via ghosts or via cabin fever uh, where he ultimately you don't think, uh, oh, there's murder, like attempts you- to murder his own family as per like replaying a story. Uh, from 10 years previous where 
the winter caretaker of this exact same hotel did the same exact thing and killed two of his daughters and his wife and then shot himself with a shotgun. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, You don't think there's ghosts? I want to get into the, yeah. Wendy sees the ghosts. I know. She's not crazy. It's something I think very specific with, about the Kubrick element of the I film, know. which we have yet to speak of. But Stephen so King would absolutely say there are literally ghosts. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, you know, like we'll talk about that a little later. I was just prefacing it with mm. a caveat of in case you did kind of what yeah. I did in my youth uh, watching this film. Sure, um, haunted house. Some critics built on an Indian burial ground drives a guy yep. crazy, tries to axe his family, he freezes to death, they get away. That's the story. Mm-hmm. That's the story. We're sticking to it. Uh, and there's also, mm-hmm. there's subplot. Uh, obviously, uh, we have some auxiliary characters. We have the whole, we have Grady. We have the whole concept of the shining. See, this but is what's funny to me. You were the one before we elements. launched this series that was pushing for, you were like, I don't like in Coen Brothers how we had to go through every scene and mention every scene and I don't need to synopsize before we analyze. Now you're stretching out the elevator synopsis. I think the elevator pitch can be a few paragraphs. I just don't think it needs to be 40 minutes. This is way, you think you could get in an elevator to go from like the lobby to the 10th floor, let's say, and have said as much as we've said? Before the elevator ride was over, Michael, that's do you what think an elevator that most pitch is. pitches occur in elevators. That's what the term means. It means I the know length that's of an what elevator. The term ride. means. <laughs> it's just like it, I don't know. It's just to get you acclimated to what we we're going to focus on and what the important plot beats are. But sure. yeah, I'm done. So okay. let's move on. Good. I'm waiting on Great. you now. <laughs> no, let's move on. Uh, our next segment is called Skeleton Crew, which is a Stephen King short story. You get what we're doing. <laughs> Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the door. You're smart. You get it. And, and this one is about the creative team or uh, behind the scenes trivia that we might want to bring up because it's relevance uh, regarding yes. the uh, the plot, the symbology of the thing. And re what we said at the top. I do think this segment will also likely usually be short because the point is not to just go on and on. Man, I'll tell you, I had to learn about bloodshot recently. Tangent. Uh-huh warning um, but that's part of what this show is for uh and so i listened to a bunch of podcast episodes about the character bloodshot who's a valiant comics superhero and there are so many podcasts with like a couple hundred listens an episode where people unspool facts in a very dry manner and i'm someone who loves to learn but i just want to like Hey, shout out to all my fellow podcasters out there. Uh, Put more of your personality and your own individual journey and (laughs) insights into it. Don't just read the don't just literally read the Wikipedia entry. Like my favorite murder is not good only because they tell you what's in the Wikipedia entry. They Mm -hmm. tangent off and they express themselves, and you get a taste of what it would be like to hang out with them. Anyway. Uh, I agree. And not only that, I'm going to double down and say I'm putting you on notice. <laughs> yeah, fuck you other podcasters. Fuck you other podcasters. <laughs> Gamefully unemployed. What is this yeah. shit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's call what? it out. Oh, huh? Who? <laughs> no. who are you and who am I now? Quick question. <laughs> what is our role? Jesus Christ. Uh, anyway, um, but the point I'm getting at, wait, what did I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The point I'm getting at is that Skeleton Crew is this 
space for us to bring up because we are well steeped in film lore. Uh, trivia that we think will bear on what we're going to say when we actually get to the meat of the thing. So mm-hmm. there obviously are uh, like reality things that bear on what we're going to talk about. So, uh, I mean, I feel like with The Shining, it's kind of obvious, but I'll open it to you first, Abe. Was there stuff about the creative team or interesting behind-the-scenes facts that you think inform our conversation to come? Absolutely, and I want to start first with the advent of the Steadicam. Because the operator, one of the operators, primary operators of the Steadicam in this movie, which gives it its kind of iconic look where people follow down. Anytime it's a hallway, it's on a Steadicam, basically. And it's not the Steadicam you normally think of when you see films being made now. It was actually had like wheels on it and it took a few people to do. Um, Sorry to interrupt so quickly, but for people who haven't seen a modern day Steadicam... It's like a vest with armatures coming out of the chest and controls mm-hmm. that attach to the camera. I just feel like exactly. a lot of people would have A gyroscopic seen that. mechanism. Uh, yeah, basically. Pretty cool. Yeah, correct. And it's a very, very, one of the best invented uh, tools of um, definitely of camera grip, but maybe of camera of all time. It's, it's like up there to me for filmmaking purposes with like the lens. It's just such a. A brilliant piece of machinery that allows for a completely transparent and like feeling that you are moving like you're a human being and a witness to these events as if we're you know that's kind of the psychology of the Steadicam but anyway Garrett Brown is the inventor of the Steadicam and he invented it in around 1975-76 for a little bit of history the first film it actually uh, appeared in was the Hal Ashby film Bound for Glory so there had only been like a handful of films. I think it's like 12 or 15 or something like that that actually used Steadicam up to this point. It wasn't hugely adopted. It was used in Rocky, uh, you know, Rocky II, obviously. Uh, it was used in a bunch of other films of this era that people used it as kind of like action rig. This is the mm-hmm. first time it was really used since like, and Ashby used it very restrained in his film. So like no one had really dived into what's what's the ability of this thing. And what's crazy is that when uh, like Kubrick was walking around the sets that had already been built in England and brought Garrett Brown uh, to like look at and like basically pitch him like join our film. Uh Garrett Brown immediately, immediately knew. It's like been well uh, recorded that he was like, yep, this is exactly why I invented this machine. No one gets it yet. Kubrick totally gets it. Uh, And Kubrick used other techniques like uh, a very accurate speedometer on the rig so that he could duplicate the tempo of a given shot. Like it would keep your speed like constant, like you would know after a take, you were faster than the last time. So A, he can make sure that every take was identical and B, he could like basically throughout the film know that there is a certain speed of the Steadicam given uh, scene to scene, even if they shot it like, you know, months before. So he did all this because Kubrick is meticulous. And I think that the Steadicam, the reason that it was so evocative to Garrett, Garrett Brown, and we're going to talk about this probably later about the symbology of it, but is that um, something that the production designers and the 
uh, people who the, the the set constructors of the actual Outlook Hotel did is they basically made these like a series of mazes, right? It's an impossible hotel when you look at the architecture. Like if you were to draw the maps and look at the blueprints, and this is there's been books written about this. They made it impossible. Windows lead to nowhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's such a planned film, and I think the Steadicam. Uh, and the ability to walk f and break the line from left to right, move on one side, move on the other side, uh, to hide aspects, to cut, cut corners very quickly or very closely. Uh, these are aspects of um, the team that were coming in that were highly technical for the time and uh, more or less what Kubrick's art is uh, and why this movie, I think, is so evocative is that its filming was done on this technology. That's so interesting in the sense that uh, we are so yin-yang. Like, when I said it's obvious what we'll talk about, I had assumed you were going to bring up the now pretty common knowledge that uh, one of his directing tactics was to have Jack Nicholson and himself treat Shelley Duvall like shit the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I just think it speaks to our natures that you were like, no, I care about the camera thing. And I was like, I care about the oh, people thing. Mm -hmm. um, for people new to us, that's kind of how we supplement each other. I didn't know that about <laughs> yeah, the he's the, he's the empath. I'm the monster. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I that's an important aspect. That. I, I did think that you would probably talk about no, that. I, I do have some yeah, takes yeah. on the takes. I just meant we're like, Double Dragon, we're two rude yeah. dudes, we're saving we're the president's daughter, which is your enjoyment of film, and we do mm -hmm. that by specializing, and it's interesting that I always can expect the kind of thing that you're going to latch onto, and you, vice versa, I'm sure, know what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I already said it, but the only thing I wanted to bring up, because I know it'll bear later on the conversation, is that in directing there's a thing you do where you like i love directing for the theater specifically you still get to do it on set if you have time cracked we never had time so it didn't happen that often except the crack studios projects but traditionally when you direct and you do have a lot of time and you get to lavish attention on your actors and treat it like a scene and try to you know crack the scene and make it work um as Kubrick insisted upon doing and didn't give a shit about your schedule and went way over budget almost always. Um, there are, there's the tactic of playing improv games and creating pretend realities that we all share for set periods of time. And it can be as short as a single improv game to get everyone energies, everyone's energy up, or it can be as extreme as what would come to be known as the method where you try to make it so that Daniel day Lewis is always Abraham Lincoln, which I honestly think is kind of fetishistic and going too far. It's, it's, it's well-documented among performers that that's farther than you need to go to get a stellar performance. And a lot of people who employ the method are assholes, but uh, that aside, um, in this case, Kubrick decided as a strategic thing, Everyone should treat Shelley Duvall like shit the whole time. And there's a, a documentaries covering this you can watch. But I just think if you didn't somehow know that, that's an important thing about this, the making of this film that will bear on our unpacking of the arcs, I'm sure. Yeah. In addition to his treatment of Shelley Duvall, which uh, just to unpack that a little bit more, I think the internal thinking of it, not 
justification of it because I share your ideology that it's it's I don't think I don't think that kind of thing should be done without consent and it's clear mm-hmm. it got to a point past consent with Shelley Duvall and I think that that is uh, the fact that that wasn't talked about and, and uh, it's it's why unions exist you know yeah um, uh, that said I do think uh, that there's something about Kubrick that a lot of people might who who are a little bit more of a film buffs understand about him is that it's not irregular for him to do. Uh, to be almost misog—not uh, well, misogynistic is one thing, in but uh, case, mas- yeah. masochistic in other elements of his filmmaking uh, mm-hmm. strategy, and by that he is tyrannical. But it's usually done. It's not like um, we have this perception. I've talked to a lot of people who have watched Kubrick's movies, and there seems to be kind of a misled. Um, kind of version of Kubrick, uh, which is that he's this kind of guy, he's like Hitchcock. I've heard a lot of descriptions of Hitchcock this as well, where he took like, you know, 45 takes to get this one little thing. Um, it's, it's not as much, uh, that it's like, Oh, it's just not perfect yet. I want to get it more. I mean, it is a little bit of that in the case of like when they shot the the blood, the iconic bloodshot of the elevators. That only took three tries, but it takes nine days to reset. I assume it took that long because after they do an attempt, they just move on to shoot other sequences mm-hmm. in part of the hotels, moving the mechanisms of filmmaking and all the people necessary to do that. Uh, so the production would just assume that they would try through their lengthy run of the entire production that they'll just get it whenever it's ready and reset. And it had a smaller crew cleaning it up. It was probably like three people cleaning up a whole hallway for nine days because they couldn't give like 20 people to that one job. Their job wasn't to make a movie about this one shot. It was to make a movie. Ultimately, uh, that there's one aspect of Kubrick, but, um, another thing that I wanted to shed some light on is that it, what there's conversations and it's well documented on like his auto, his biography, uh, and uh, like of what his process was and why he would, when it was with actors, make them do 20, 30 takes. And the reason why is that he wanted to dispel the ambitions of the actors and himself to the lines. He wanted to kind of create like a mantra, like a very Zen-like kind of Buddhist uh, like word that you just repeat to yourselves. Tell all meaning of your initial read had been taken out of it. So he had such availability in editing to choose when people were disassociated with the events versus not. He wanted like to have essentially when you choose, like, like say, let's say you're a painter, right? And your canvas is editing. And if you have that ability, if you're painting just on one page, you have to choose red as the color. But if you have the entire gamut of performances, along a very like a thread line of like, for example, Shelley Duvall feeling very terrified when Jack Nicholson is, you know, thrusting a a ax through a door. Uh, Her terror uh, can be a single note. That is like the correct note where the director usually would go like, that's exactly what I wanted. Let's print it. Move on. Kubrick would get to that point in his takes. He'd often get there within three to five takes like anybody any other director but then he would also had this devotion to the idea of like but what if i'm wrong so out of his 
devout insecurity, he created these masterpieces. I think by being able to get distance away from it and having the tools at his disposal later in the editing room, where, let's be honest, if you're a filmmaker, that's where the real magic happens because you get to compile and list actual created moments, the emotions and the through lines that as the audience who are watching manifest themselves throughout these scenes. So if if you, you have increased resolution of being able to essentially turn things on or off like an orchestra or like a think of someone at like a mixing board when they're cutting an album and you're like well just maybe turn on the bass a little bit for that one little bit and then turn it back down if you have that control you can create a better more operatic experience and therefore that's i think one of the uh, abilities of him to do that does not justify all the stuff that you're saying. But, uh, you know, like the shot of the tennis ball running to Danny's toys took like 50 times to get right. Uh, there's a lot of people who have talked about the Guinness Book of World Records actually has an incorrect record. I think it's been sent. Uh, it's been corrected since. Uh, it said it took 127 takes to shoot the scene where Shelley Duvall's character is swinging a bat at Jack Nicholson as he approaches her up the stairs. Uh, according to the people who were there on the day, the scene was shot a lot, but it was only about like 35 times. So it's like there's a lot of this mystique around it that I think is turned into a narrative about Kubrick that Kubrick didn't necessarily have in control of. Now, what he did have control of is about how he chose to treat people on set, which was, you know, notoriously wrong. I also think even from the artistic perspective... I understand the logic behind that tactic. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a metaphilosophical issue, which is that, and I know Kubrick would not agree with me that this is a valid concern, but for me it is. Uh, I'm also a human, like meat animal that exists in a resource pool. There's a point at which is your art so important? important that you should go three times over budget and fuck everyone over like it's just a movie and that's funny to say as someone who thinks movies are everything which i do but i still think there's such a thing as being up your own ass about how important your art is always and i also would say that that draining or the repetition until the lines are meaningless which he seems to love so much does tend to make his movies I feel like you can only come out with an alienated tone. Like you can strain yourself to only talking about the topic of alienation because all of his movies are about alienation and they are mm-hmm. all very alienated and off-putting and the people say the lines like they're weirdly hollow and meaningless. And I'm like, yeah, if that's what you wanted to get to, that's how you do that. What he did. But uh, it does make all of his movies samey in tone to me in a way that I was thinking this while watching this this time. I find Chris Nolan this way as well. I think Chris Nolan, and I actually think Chris Nolan is even maybe a cut or two below Kubrick's like raw level of talent. But in many ways, I would call Nolan our new Kubrick. Um, he of like the meticulously made films that are alienated in tone he's definitely in terms of scale i would agree with that scale and also the feeling of like every nolan movie and every kubrick movie is like a philosophical treatise that you're just sort of looking at (laughs) it's it doesn't 
it doesn't suck you in in an emotional way. And I, I think in, hey, let's move into our next segment called It. Boo, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. Where we talk about It. This is the meat of the episode, the body of the yeah, episode. Yeah, so basically, yeah, we're going to, tri- if we do bring up trivia and stuff like that, the point of It is scene work, themes, symbology. So it's always to a broader point or thesis that one of us kind of wants to make. And we'll probably illuminate why we brought up the trivia we brought up as, mm-hmm. as the preload. So I think we're transitioning now very smoothly in the sense that uh, I felt watching the first half hour of The Shining this time that the acting was ridiculously laughably bad. <laughs> um, and mm. I realized that it is... I've heard this take. It's yeah. strategic. I understood the strategy in the fullness of the film because, spoiler alert, the movie's good and it is scary. And it created a separation between, I feel, and I don't know if this was the intent, but it's how it affected me. Oh, it's getting at the way that you can be stilted and very polite in public and there's a separation between your public face and your private face. Like the Jack Torrance that we see interact with the world would never say the word fuck even. And yet he will behind closed doors yelling at his wife. So it's that it's like setting up a reality where you think, Oh, this is a movie that's going to play in the public space. Like, You know what I mean when I say there are movies that don't violate the idea that we wear different faces in different spaces? They let all the characters are unified. Each character unto themselves is their persona, and their persona is their persona, and they navigate the story of the film using that unified persona. Mm -hmm. There are other films that are interested in a true thing, which makes your movie more complicated and may dilute your point if you had a simple point in mind. But a lot of movies play into the other idea that we all know, which is that, well, each individual character actually has multiple facets and they can act weird. They can act in ways that you go, everything I know about the character would say they wouldn't act like that. But then later you find out, right, but when they were young, they saw someone burn their dog alive in front of them. That's why they acted that way in that moment. And you sort of round out these facets of the character that become a multidimensional understanding of what they may do in any given context. And I feel like The Shining definitely is playing with that, where they're like, you present your relationship, your marriage, as going very well to the public. And that doesn't necessarily completely want the one match with how it's going. Uh, You might use more vulgar language or be more emotional or blah, blah, blah. And that is used in the film to great effect to build the tension and horror and build what I think is the most interesting aspect, the, like the, uh, way it resonates with the journey of an addict and addiction. He's an alcoholic recovering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's just, it's very, it's a fuel of a lot of the tension. And yet at the same time, it just means you have to sit through this portion where I found the pacing very stilted for like the first half hour, 45 minutes, the pacing stilted, the crossfades unearned, uh, rookie scene writing mistakes. Like every scene began with people opening a door and walking from one room to another room and going, now we're going into this room. And you're like, I know, 
this is like the kind of exposition that you're taught to cut out. This is stupid. This is pointless. And I think <clears throat> what uh, The Shining does super well and what Kubrick obviously intentionally did very meticulously and which he does to great effect in 2001, A Space Odyssey as well, is use boredom. And boredom is not the right word, but use stillness and banality as a tool to create a background environment against which horror is even scarier than it would be if the whole thing were horror. Like green room is more of just from back to front. There's or a survival horror in general from back to front. There's scary shit happening the whole time. And you're scared because you're imagining how scary that would be. The shining is more classic horror, more Hitchcock where it's like, actually for a while, everything seems fine. So fine. It's kind of boring by modern standards, but it's so that when the scary shit pops off, it's really surprising. It's really shocking. And it seems more obs- more obscene and more grotesque because you have a very firm grasp of, in this film's universe, what normal reality feels like. And normal reality is people just calmly talking and everything's fine, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. it provides that contrast. Uh, So I did come to see it as a strategy. I think the standout moment that made me realize it is, of course, Halloran famously getting killed, which differs from the book. Um, The whole time Halloran was traveling from Florida to Colorado, I'm like, Jesus Christ, Kubrick, why are we watching him on the plane say, Mm. you know, I'm flying to Denver. (laughs) Like, why are we watching him rent the snowcat and drive up the road and call the ranger station a second time to check in? And it's like, it's so that when he gets fucking axed in the chest, you're as goddamn shocked as you could possibly be. Yeah, Because the time investment... So that's why Nolan also is amazing at this, and I'll stop bringing up Chris Nolan at this point, but Kubrick is amazing at understanding what film is and how it's not life, and how your experience of a film can be hacked like you would program a robot, where he's like, The film grammar itself, the underlying film grammar itself is what is making the audience think, well, why would the director spend all this time showing Halloran go from Florida to Colorado unless Halloran was going to play some important pivotal role in saving the family? And Mm -hmm. so, and you don't, that's what I love because it uses film grammar at a level where the average film goer is not consciously considering that unless they're doing an analytical like second watch because you're in the moment thinking okay that means that okay i take Mm -hmm. this for granted that means that there's enough weight put on here why would we pan to that unless that's going to come back later and this Chekhov's gun shit that you don't think about getting fucked with is my favorite thing. So then, of course, when Halloran gets axed in the chest immediately upon arriving at the Overlook, your feeling of hopelessness is supreme because that was the character that in 99% of movies is the designated character who at the moment that the Wendy and Danny are about to get stabbed to death, that character is the one who would come from off frame and shoot Jack in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. Like the off screen character that's been stabled to save us later has been immediately killed. Uh, Kubrick is amazing at making bold filmic statements about the nature of film like that. Uh, And it's the same thing we appreciate about Coen Brothers projects like No Country. No Country works because it 
every beat of the story works within the texture of a story moment to moment, but it works on a whole other level because it also is fucking with what it is to watch a movie and the unspoken contract you may never have considered between you and the filmmaker. Like if the protagonist dies, we get to see that they broke that contract. And uh, I think Kubrick plays at that level and the shining plays at that level. I agree. Uh, there's a lot of what you said. There's two things that, uh, cause I agree and I agree about with your overall, uh, positing of the your arguments there's Thank two you, aspects of what you said that i would like to give an addendum or maybe even you know depending on how you see it a disagreement with which is there's two things you said one is the quality of the acting and then the other one is the stillness of the rhythm uh and those are two aspects that i wanted to kind of uh, adjust uh, how i thought uh, mm-hmm. about it um so with <clears throat> i think that they're kind of as you pointed out, they're kind of one, they're kind of all the same. You, you, or they're all leading to one central kind of architecture or point. Um, and it's that the tone of the movie is as such. Um, but with the bad acting, I don't think it's as much bad. I think that there is actually like, obviously we can take like a single performance of a single line and say, is that, that's, is that weird? Or is that great? You know, what is it? Uh, but I think as a whole, there is a lot of subtlety going on in these boring sequences with the acting where it just seems like they're like the car ride over where they're just talking about the Donner party. No, there's or, a lot there. I'm talking about the interview, the interview where he's just like, do you like it here? You know, I really do. Do you think your family will like it here? I think they sure will. And like yeah. the long I, pauses <clears throat> between each line, the pacing is so weird. I like that because it's a, it sets the tone of the whole thing of like something's off here. Uh, and it's also to look at the way in which we do like the social niceties of like an interview or all the things and the hats that we put on in order to be someone else in order to get a job or be successful or in the, uh, the famous speech that uh, Jack Nicholson has. Has it ever occurred to you that I've agreed to look on the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Uh, I've signed a letter of agreement, a contract. Do you have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is? Like he is drinking the Kool-Aid of society. Uh, one of the things that I agree with that's been said about Kubrick is that he's, he's, uh, he hates, hates, hates propaganda and tries it all attempts to dispel the idea that he makes propagandist films, even though he knows it's an uphill battle and, in fact, probably impossible. But ultimately, I think what he's doing with those, like there's another sequence where Jack to Danny, there's a scene when he they first arrive at the bar and they're being thrown through the hotel by Ullman, and uh, Danny's found on the premises because he's exploring outside looking for them. And when he arrives, uh, Jack says to Danny, you you got bored of blowing up the universe? Kid says, yeah. And then they all laugh kind of thing. And then Meaning he gives he his wife... he was playing like an arcade game or something. Yeah. Then he gives his wife and son a look of absolute spite. And it's uh, also just to backtrack a little bit in that sequence. It's immediately after... Uh, it's the first moment in the scene since Jack said, we don't drink, mm-hmm. uh, which is the focus of the group's attention of like, oh, what's that mean? Uh, so the focus is immediately on him. And so he knew that the spotlight was off of him because of Danny's arrival. So he like, can he look truly with the eyes that he actually has 
at his wife and son as absolute burdens to him. And that is his fundamental flaw and why he's a madman. Yes, uh, and, and it's important to note that I think... Uh, There's subtlety in that. Like you mentioned, the cannibal scene driving. Uh, I think it's very important that Jack is a... a well, it's hard to say because we get very little information, but I get a, I have the feeling that Jack is an asshole before oh yeah he gets compromised by demonic ghost forces mentally uh and they like kubrick very meticulously in the drive up you see him be dismissive of his wife in a subtle way that you that is acceptable meaning it's not abusive but she is nothing but nice and empathetic and she's a caretaker he, she does she's she does what he's positive. supposed to do and yeah. he, and he is irritable in a way that and shows contempt. And it was interesting to me because one of my favorite studies is from that Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, where he talked about a mm. study where they could predict with like 80% certainty whether a couple would be together like five years from now based on no audio, just a video of them talking for 30 seconds. And the thing that indicated if you were going to break up, which the like computer algorithm honed in on and finally revealed was a body language that signals contempt, meaning you roll your eyes. Like contempt is specific. It's not hate. It's mm. you think this person's less than you. You are, yeah. you feel free to shrug off something mm. they might check mm. you on because you think of them as dumb secretly, but you don't tell them to their face. Mm. Like Jack very subtly shows contempt for his family before they get to the Overlook Hotel. And I think that's a very yeah. good move. I think that's very cool. I think that's key and well well said. I think it uh in in reference to the stillness of uh you know these the uh Kubrick's movies and in this movie in particular, uh it speaks to that. You know, it's 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 talking about that spite, those absolute stolen like we look at those moments as nothing's happening, maybe it's maybe because we're not looking at the right spot. Now you can credit or discredit that to Kubrick and saying that, well, if you didn't direct my eye to that and I didn't like focus on that moment, it was a waste of time for both of us. But it harkens back to theater where you can't really direct the eye. You have to use big gestures in order to distract a hundred percent of the audience towards one direction. You know, um, in film, we are a lot more, we have the ability to do that with just by changing the shot. Uh, he doesn't like that aspect of it. He doesn't want to make a propagandist film where he's like spoon feeding you. Like you said, a Chekhov's gun earlier, like Chekhov's gun is a, a perfect analogy for propaganda. What's important right now? Well, the gun. Why is it important? You'll find out it's later. It's loaded and cocked. Oh, yeah. does that mean something's going to happen? Something, you bet yes, your it ass. Does. Remember <laughs> that. Why? Because it's important. Why? Because I'm doing a thing here. Yeah, just uh, wait. It's going to come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he's going to make a search for those moments. And there's another filmmaker, Michael Haneke, who made a film called Cachet that is like a very symbolic sequel to this movie, in my opinion. And it's because it deals to not like not necessarily in plot, but it deals tonally with that exact kind of impetus, which is that you have to kind of search a little bit in these scenes to see really what's going on to be immersed into it. Just like real life is like real life. Those moments that, you know, like you're talking about in blink are sometimes 
invisible to us, but to other people, absolutely loud and clear within 30 seconds, you're going to break up kind of thing. It's because it's about, it's about the nature of a relationship of like, we're screaming all the time to say like, why are they doing this to Shelly Duvall? Why is Wendy such a, like, she's so beaten and downtrodden. It's one of the things that Stephen King hated about the casting of Shelly Duvall. Cause he imagined in the, in the same role, like an ex cheerleader who had the confidence because he thought it was more interesting to like put her in that situation that she's not equipped for a person who's been downtrodden their entire life, which is how Shelley Duvall's really playing it and how Kubrick was trying to basically get out of her, uh, is a lot more, it's a lot different because what it's trying to do is it's trying to say, uh, a person that's downtrodden like that would probably be better equipped than a, like, you know, the analogy of an ex cheerleader who has had confidence her whole life. I also think it's like that darker and sicker and realer and more upsetting in a way yes. that is actually more legitimately upsetting and depressing because it's, it's true. It's I think, very and upsetting. I know the book does weave in themes of, uh, alcoholism and, uh, you know, some people say the snow of storm is a metaphor for Stephen King's cocaine addiction. And he is <laughs> certainly like admitted that, his struggles with addiction, addiction brings you to horrifying points. And he certainly uses his struggles with addiction as part of the fuel for what is scary, what is truly upsetting, what is sad. And uh, so a lot of his books metaphorically, abstractly touch on the nature of like struggling with addiction. But The Shining. And as an addendum to that, just real yeah. quickly, one of the incidences in The, in the Shining where it's in both the book and the movie where he talks about how he only hurt Danny once when he was playing with his papers. That came from a real moment where Stephen King looked at his son, saw that he was like destroying his work and he's had this instantaneous moment. He was like, I fucking want to strangle my kid right now. Uh, and then immediately yeah. because he's a real person is like, well, like that's what, but yeah. I really viscerally reacted that way. <laughs> that's there's a movie in that, or there's a story in that rather. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's true to, I think that's, it's a part of the alcoholism, but it's also a part of like, it's not about yeah, the writer. It's no, about I was, the I shouldn't one have, to one. Yes, I agree. I shouldn't have inserted the alcoholism because what I really am excited to like get at is it's, I think Kubrick's greatest service to the story is ghosts are scary, but they aren't real. And he did like a nodding service to, Hey, mm. I, yeah, there's ghosts, you know, it's the shining, there's ghosts, there's psychic powers. But, Obviously, Kubrick is more interested in what's more horrifying than a realizing the father of your child has contempt for you and your child and from the other perspective, suspecting you might hate your own family like mm -hmm. those are that's real shit. That really will fuck a life up. That will ruin your life. That's some fucked that's up dark shit. And Kubrick made terror. that yeah. the engine of the horror. And it Which, does, the dread is so much more palpable than if you were just like, I hope these ghosts don't get us. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, he, you're, yeah. And it reminds me yeah. very much of Ari Aster, who is having a lot of great horror hits right now, right. using sort of the same tactic. Like I read a great interview about Midsummer, where he said, where the person was like, where he was like, Hereditary was about my family and how we're fucked up and how we don't always love each other and like the fa the darker family dynamics exaggerated mm -hmm. and literalized into a horror movie, right? And mm -hmm. they said, what about Midsummer?" And he said, a bad breakup. And they're like, well, okay, that makes sense because they break up in the film. 
did you feel that you were, is it about like how you found empathy again and became empowered? And he's like, no, it's about how when my girlfriend cheated on me and broke my heart, I legitimately for a minute there wished she would die. Like I'd like to see her burn to death in front of me. And Mm -hmm. the horror of knowing that I really wanted that even for a moment, like what manner of beast is man. And I was like, yeah, that's the real shit. (laughs) (laughs) I think shining is similar. No, it's a perfect segue. Similarly honest. My favorite, like we both dialed in on what the, the horror trope is we both picked up that that is the best part. I think a lot of people do pick that up, you know, if they... The dysfunction of the family and Shelley Duvall's ghosts. position yeah, exactly. is what's so upsetting. And yeah. that's one of the best things about this movie is what uh, Kubrick and probably King to some extent, I haven't read the book actually, uh, so I don't know if he did this in way in like a formalist attitude in terms of the, the the structure of the book or anything like that. But one of my favorite things to talk about when I think of the shining is the mirroring and symmetry and the, the placement of mirrors in this film and the placement of how symmetry is used based on screen direction and the hallways and uh, the fact that uh, unreliable narrators lead us to this kind of spatial inconsistency that is itself the hotel. Uh, there's something about how Kubrick approaches the problem of like when we think about a father and a son, uh, someone once said of The Shining, it's like it's uh, it's Jack versus the Outlook versus Danny. <laughs> and that's a that's a common thing. If you look at Kubrick's most of Kubrick's films, uh, they, they call it the three way. It's uh, three yeah, different. Do. Yeah, they do. It's three different antagonist protagonists. It's like a triangle of an, uh, antagonist protagonists, you know, like full metal jacket. Oh, he likes that structure. That. Yeah, he likes the structure of like you not knowing, like who's exactly the antagonist of the film? Because almost every film clear. is driven yeah. by a dyad, one protagonist, one exactly, antagonist. Exactly. It's like he's like, let's, let's that, bump it up a notch of complexity. Let's bump it up a notch yeah. because that's a little bit more true, just the idea that's a slightly more complex. Yeah. But the, what he does with mirroring in that, like, every time, like, Jack, obviously, every time he talks to himself, he, like, talks to in a mirror. Uh, he does a lot of stuff where uh, when he's talking, like, to the hotel, quote unquote, there are mirrors around. Uh, there's symmetry in the ways that, like, I don't want to get boiled down to it, but there's stuff like Jack creeps towards Wendy in the baseball bat scene. He's traveling in, like, a counterclockwise, like, way, which is the direction that Danny traveled on his tricycle. And then Danny turns counterclockwise uh, to t- uh, before he sends the second floor, which is where Wendy goes. So it's like this weird little dance of like ways in which people turn. Another example of it is one of my favorite little like pieces of trivia or just things that you didn't really notice about the spatial in- inconsistency uh, in this sh- uh, movie is that is the uh, the freezer scene where he's showing he's like pointing out to Wendy and uh, Danny like we got a bunch of meat and stuff like that uh-huh. when he goes to open the door uh, <clears throat> like the 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 latch is on the the left side and then it cuts to a new shot inside the yeah. freezer and he opens and the latch the is on side. the right side it's mm. a different door. And it's not right? a continuity error. It was intentional. 
And here's how we know why. Halloran opens the freezer and he approaches and we have a little sequence of that. And then it cuts to back outside where it looks like it's continuous with the previous shot where they looked in and they had their dialogue and then they came out and they went about their business. If you look at the door, it's opposite to the first time. So they actually cut, replaced the door, continued the scene. And he does this meticulously throughout. He wants you to feel like the outlook itself is a maze. It does stuff. Yeah. Like uh, it's it also obviously just, it makes yeah. booze manifest when it wants to, to get exactly. Jack drunk. It does things like the big breaking point is of course, when like you are following normal non-supernatural rules and you're like, okay, he's locked in there. I wonder how he's going to get out. The house mm-hmm. just lets him out and you're like, oh, I didn't know it could do that. Oh shit. Okay. Like the house just sends a ghost to unlock the door and let him out. That yeah. was a, that's a big breaking point where you realize supernaturality is now playing a firm hand part in like the third act. Uh, that's a good time for me to point out uh, the thing that we alluded to at the top of the podcast, which is the first time I ever watched this movie, and I was fairly young. It was mm-hmm. definitely like maybe high school or maybe early high school. Uh, I thought that the point was that there was no ghosts. Oh. And I know that Shelley Duvall <laughs> sees the ghosts, but I and my like logic had determined Shelley that Duvall, that was be- but how could she see the she, furry blowing the nice dandy gentleman? She, she sees more than one. She yeah. sees the waiter with the oh, blood she, on his face. Yeah, and she stops and he like says a line at her. Yeah, it's all her. the same sequence. It's all in that one sequence. And I thought of that as it's a kind of, uh, it's trying to show cabin fever as mm-hmm. it infects everyone and like the uh villain it was cabin fever kind of thing by the way the now s- sorry the skeletons in the ballroom dumbest image in the whole movie i, I just right. didn't think that worked <laughs> and here's my case for it it's it's more of a case that i think kubrick's and because i have since changed my mind obviously there's ghosts i didn't even know stephen king had written it when i'd seen the film uh in the first iteration of it uh, but uh, it shows you how if you just like are completely blind to something and watch something, Kubrick had the power to do. My argument is that Kubrick was making it intentionally vague. And the reason that he did that, and I think that's a usually agreed upon, is there's a few things that make you go, OK, everything is very un- unreliable. For example, there's the obvious one of like the booze appears. He can't be getting drunk, right? That must be just like a dream sequence of some kind, right? So you can and the fact that there's ghosts there and, um, you know, like they're all dancing and it's 1921 and stuff like that. Like you can all just chalk that up to just unreliable, uh, you know, jack narration. But you can see the avocat <clears throat> stain on his jacket after. And the later vision. when he's locked in and he uh, and he's hearing knocks, uh, there is amongst he's got like oreos and like peanuts mm-hmm. and he clearly like went to Ate he just slept and stuff and like that asleep, yeah and uh there's a 40 that's half drank near him oh. so it's just like there's ways in which they like break kubrick is not only giving you these little like david lynchian kind of like sequences of dreams he's also weaving in this unreliability of the space 
and if you chalk that up to ghosts, totally makes sense. There's a supernatural element that explains the doors, for example, or the maze. Um, but it, and and the, just the idea of Jack being absorbed by the hotel and the title uh, cards themselves. Like I thought it was weird, and then I realized I think it's part of this warping thing you're talking about, where like the first section is called the interview. And then the next one's called opening day and you go, okay, so it's divided out by segments with segment titles. And then the next one is, no, the next one is a month later and you're like, okay. And the next one is Tuesday. And you're like, what even are these title cards? And then at at 4 p.m. and 8 a.m. And then it says 4 p.m. And you're like, okay, time is impossible to pay exactly it's like well what's your definition of when this is well what's your definition of when of anything (laughs) yeah uh, like if you have someone who is so spiteful of their own family and responsibilities and they are going crazy by cabin fever i could i totally understand why stupid dumb high school abe could have made the assumption that there was no ghosts. Oh, totally. That's all I'm saying. So if you yeah. watch this movie and you didn't know these things about it, I wouldn't feel terribly out of sorts about it. I think it's Kubrick trying to say, I'm not super down with the supernatural aspect of it because I believe that the true horror elements of Stephen King's source material are what humans really is, do to each other. Yeah. Is <laughs> no. actually real, which, yeah. you know, Stephen King is making as an allegory, Kubrick is making it just one step closer to real. I think that's one of the keys uh, on our journey is, yeah, Stephen King is a master of uh, abstracting things that we do want to think about, but Mm. are hard to look directly at. A lot of his stories are metaphors for addiction, trauma, grief, callousness, uh, sociopathy, psychopathy. And then he like makes it, but it's magic though. So you're okay to like go through the journey and think about these issues without thinking about your people you love in your life who really struggle with these things or are the victims of these kinds of trauma. And Kubrick is the type of artist who's like, okay, what if we de-abstractified it and the movie was like, yeah, the real version. Life is shit. The real stuff. Um, So I did want to briefly, and I think it's my last major block for it, uh, is, uh, and it's perfect timing, give a little illumination on the ghostly parts and like what the supernatural reading would be. Because another thing I thought was notable this viewing was, I had come to think of it as Kubrick completely sapped all the supernaturality out of it because I'm so familiar with the story of him calling Stephen King and saying he doesn't believe in an afterlife and hanging up (laughs) at 3 a.m. and not wanting it to be supernatural and all this shit and how Stephen King doesn't like it. And I actually was surprised. I was like, actually, he didn't go that far. He went out of his way to include a very subtle but present nods to a supernatural interpretation. He definitely allows for it because Mm. the way the shinings described to us was like more mathematical than I remembered it being in a way that I found satisfying. Like Halloran talks about his grandmother having the shining and he had it. So there's a hereditary Mm. element and we get the feeling that Wendy Uh, Or he says the shining can manifest in specific different ways. It could be like a telepathic link. It could be like you walk into a space and see what's going to happen in the future. Or it could be you walk into a space and see 
traces of something that happened in the past. And it's up to you to sort of muddle through what your visions are because the shining can manifest differently in different people. I'm sure this is all from the book, but I was gratified that Kubrick left the space for that. Uh, and so you get the impression, and I found it very satisfying in a nerd way, where you're like, oh, Danny is more on the like seeing the future and seeing the traces. So actually, Danny's Danny's all three. Danny's the super being because he's the special boy. He uh, Tony, uh, I think a good takeaway people eventually get that I love is Tony is not bad. Tony is constantly fighting for Danny. Like, for example, you see when. Danny needs to write red rum on the door because he's had a vision that his mom will see it in the mirror and it'll warn her of the danger. Tony controls Danny and Tony picks up the knife, not as a threat, but because he's considering cutting Danny's finger to write in blood. Then he realizes he can use the lipstick and he's like, Oh, okay. Mm. Then I don't need to hurt Danny. And that's the one and only one time, but you can cling to that. That's concrete proof that Tony, whatever this being is that gives him the shining, is on Danny's side. And I think it's interesting that if you think long and hard, you can do that kind of calculus on the supernatural level. Like, I think that it's very apparent that Jack is strong in the shining. And that's why he's an ideal conduit to get open a way a pathway and get taken over by the evil of the house they mentioned the indian burial ground they mentioned that this place mm. has just been a place where a lot of death and rape and murder has happened and that seeps in and that's why we're trapped in this cycle and then i thought the most interesting interpretation that i've never had before could be bullshit but if you gather that psychic powers are real and if you've read enough stephen king books you know his version is this whole honestly almost marvel-esque uh extended universe where yes like in desperation and the regulators it's revealed like where the shining comes from and it's from another dimension and there's cthulhu like elder gods involved and all this shit that i don't think we'll honestly get too much into but i know stephen king like hardcore fans want us to at least shout out yes we're aware of the outer dimension shit and the whole extended stephen king universe and I believe it's canon in some, I believe it's canon or I read it's canon that like, um, uh, Tony is, uh, is Danny in the future con- contacting his son. Oh, that's interesting. Cause his middle name's Anthony. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause then also in desperation, you find out that the shining was given. I, fr- I'm not. Yeah. But, but that's more relevant to the scenes in the books yes. because like there's also, there's also, um, like if you read that interpretation with the film, it doesn't hold water because the the way that Tony is represented is not the way in which you would interact with the past self. You know, even if you are protective, right. I, that is still and true. I, you know, so I'm fuzzy on the details because this is not a book podcast. But having read a lot of Stephen King throughout my life, I remember that. It is a thing that like Pennywise is a particular demon from another dimension that also mm. relates to the shining. It all becomes related through the Dark Tower series, yeah. but who cares? And the deadlights and <coughs> Pardon. Gesundheit. But I think the cool read that I got only this time was that in the scene where we see Grady, by the way, masterful horror move, never showing Grady's creepy ass face the whole scene and mm. withholding it and finally cutting to the close of his face. And they picked a creepy looking actor for the first line where he suggests maybe you should kill your family. Very good. Just meat and potatoes horror technique. But 
when Jack is talking to Grady for the first time in the bathroom and they're cleaning his jacket and he starts saying, you know, you know, maybe you ought to kill your family. Um, he also says, I know you, you're the caretaker that killed his family with an ax. And he says, yeah, I'm afraid I don't recall that at all, sir. I should know. You're, I've always been here, and you've always been the caretaker. You are the caretaker. And it calls out poetically to this idea that the caretaker is this sort of archetype out of time, this yeah. tragedy yeah. that's just destined to happen and recur. And I love the idea, because you've introduced the idea of time loops, because, of course, by the end, Jack somehow gets absorbed into the 1921 reality. Uh, that mm -hmm. means that, like, I like the interpretation that when Grady was going insane in the 70s and killing his family, the demon that was tormenting him and whispering in his ear was Jack. Like they they yeah, they do it for each it other outside time. of time. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Which I think is exactly. very creepy and cool. <laughs> yeah. It's very yeah, and it's uh it's a that's a cool little um yeah, we we'll talk about more about that later in other podcasts about Stephen King. He's latching on some, the archetypal aspect of uh, a lot of his stories is very very interesting yeah. to me. Um, yeah, and you yeah, can glean really from cool. tiny references in the movie that what happened with Grady, like there was a prequel Shining, <laughs> where this guy Grady unfortunately went insane despite his best efforts. His daughters figured out that it was the evil of the hotel, which is an interesting twist because Wendy doesn't ever figure that out per se. She just thinks Jack's going nuts. Um, his yeah. daughters figured it out, tried to burn the hotel down, and that's when he got him. And the wife tried to intervene and he got her too. And then we assume the house cruelly drained from him and let him become normal again so he could become overcome with grief and shoot himself in the head. Uh mm. Okay. Yeah. That was yeah. my climactic I, revelation it, that I think listeners will appreciate. No, I'm I think out. it's it's on point because it goes into the mirrored symmetry of all this yeah. stuff. It's this idea that what you look in the mirror is yourself, but it has subtle changes. And I think that that is uh, like brought down to the atomic level by Kubrick and by King uh, by doing things like uh, they say in the story or in, in the shining, they even say it in the film, he killed his two daughters who were eight and 10 mm -hmm. right now. We see those daughters cause they're speaking in, uh, you know, they have a they're British ghosts. accent as well. Yeah. They're ghosts. We see them later and they're, uh, they're twins, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's this little lack, lack of consistency. It's like the beer, uh, that he's drinking. Like there's, it is, He's playing out a tale and the consistency of the tale itself, the fabric that of things we're supposed to believe isn't real, have subtle enough inconsistencies that it makes us ask the question, is any of it real and what's real and what's right. not? And therefore we are free to like in our own mind, do these things like saying like the archetypal archetypal thing is correct where it's like, okay, ultimately people are just being played out or being quote unquote possessed by some kind of uh, supernatural kind of collective intuition that humans have about how to be about how to act, how we, uh, cause trauma upon other people with our own insecurities, how we feel joy together. And in terms of horror, it's very much so. Uh, ghosts are us 
from the past, you know, they're being manifested in the present because we're in the present. Uh, and that's, what's terrifying about it is that we all have ghosts and that we all have those kinds of insecurities and things that come to light and make us different people that we do feel possessed when we're so thoroughly involved in our own bullshit that we cause trauma upon someone else. Oh yeah. I've had that conversation with Jen, less extreme version of like, you don't understand what writing is like. When you interrupt me, I have to restart and it takes a long time to get yeah. focused again. And I'm like, man, I hate that I <laughs> am. She was just I'm trying to make Jack you a sandwich. Scene. Yeah. But I yeah. didn't go. Like, I didn't oh, go. Want something to so eat, why don't you do me a favor and get the fuck out of here or anything like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's one last bit that I wanted to bring up that's less, it's less it, but it's kind of like my final thing that I just thought I, it was a thing that I found that was kind of cool and not a lot of people know about it. Uh, it, this is the film that birthed the, uh, very tumultuous and wonderful relationship that's been documented between Steven Spielberg and, um, (laughs) and Stanley Kubrick. And the way it happened is that, uh, they were shooting at a particular English enormous, uh, set. I forget its name. It starts with an E. And that's where Raiders of the Lost Ark was about to shoot. But because he went like 30 days over or whatever it was, or even more, uh, it pushed Spielberg's shoot. So already Spielberg's coming in hot with like, Kubrick, you piece of shit. I know you're Kubrick, but this is bullshit and stuff like that. They ended up turning in to be friends. And then something Spielberg wrote about or talked about in an interview was uh, about how good this movie is. And there's just something that, like, you hear us yuck yucks talk about it, or you, you, um, you know, uh, who are listening to this, talk amongst your friends about whether you like this film or, you know, any film. Uh, the way that Spielberg talks about Kubrick is so fascinating to me. And there's just this, it's not exactly a quote, but it's a paraphrase from a section that he talks about a scene in this that I wanted to just kind of replay that, which is that um, Spielberg noted that there was a, there's a, clear way that most filmmakers would approach the scene where Wendy's looking through the all work and no play, all the papers. And it's just extended shots of that and her face and she's horrified. And we're in that moment and it's very claustrophobic, meaning that the edges of the frame are very close to us. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if that's the system that you're building, most filmmakers would do what when they then go and then Jack arrives is that he would be over her shoulder, right? He would be upon yeah, us. Yeah, I kept ex- it would be a I shock. thought you'd stay in the shot of her looking at the papers and he'd right. just come over her shoulder, yeah. Right. Instead, Kubrick abruptly cuts away to from a Wendy super wide. to a shot from him in darkness behind a pillar yeah. that tracks over to an even more distant view of Wendy from behind. And so it prepares the audience for Jack's like arrival into the frame by and eliminates any shock of his appearance. And then this is shock. Uh, this is a Spielberg paraphrase is that it's an unusual way of filming and editing the scene this way had two benefits. One. It allowed that the remainder of the sequence to maintain tension without a moment of relief that would follow from a shock. And two, by avoiding a surprise at that moment, Kubrick saved the biggest scare in the film for Halloran's murder, in which Jack's sudden appearance does come as a shock. So this is Spielberg, who understands how these, how scenes and uh, moments in cinema play. And uh, like we'll t- you know, like we talk about. Spielberg has this whole thing that he talks about all the time, which is you got to have a boring section of your movie. 
Because if you don't, there's no contrast to allow for the exciting parts. Mm -hmm. If it's constant excitement, well, you're just making Transformers. And this is him saying, I'm learning from Kubrick right here. This is Kubrick antithetically doing what is we're all trained to do. And I think it's one of Kubrick's powers is that he always would do the thing that you were like, he would do the counterintuitive direction uh, than most directors. And that's what makes him memorable. You, we can say what we want about Stanley Kubrick uh, in terms of, you know, obviously he's a monster. I think that that should be something that we all very much so like wear on our hearts and sleeves when we talk about Kubrick because he did things and was a part of a culture that was not very empathetic to uh, actors and such like that. I think that Hitchcock is in that same uh, circle. Uh, but in the same instance, we should def and we should always say that. In the same instance, he is also someone who's got such an unusual way of direction that, of course, he is one of the most um, referenced and quoted, you know, artists of our of many generations, you know, from The Simpsons all the way to just like how many times in Ready Player One had it like how many recent shining examples have been like just in the zeitgeist. It's just one of the most quoted the opening shot uh, just a top-down helicopter shot of a car driving through a pine forest is now get one out, of right? well yeah get out starts with it but i would argue i mean house the jack built i would argue it's one of the most used shots in film to a degree that people don't even realize that it's from the shining per se it's just the shot that every horror movie starts with Oh, helicopter shot of car driving through woods from the top. It's crazy how overused that shot is now. And it's from The Shining. <laughs> Talk about how counterintuitive Kubrick was. Kubrick had John Williams lined up to do the mu music for this movie. And then he just, uh, for some reason, for his own reasons, decided, you know what, I think I, I think I got it because we'll just use a bunch of different like compositions from a bunch of different artists. And it's yeah, it opens with Desiree, which my dad taught me to play on the piano yeah. when I was a little kid. Yeah, um, and uh, there's a few mu musical moments like the, the 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 sticks that play during the whole main. Oh, when she and, and like when that, she pulls the original paper out of the typewriter and it does a horse thing that really works. Mm -hmm. I thought the diegetic yeah. sound of him throwing the hand the tennis ball against the wall over and over while you look at a blank page, mm -hmm. like the booming mm -hmm. dread of on not being able to write it's I think what you're getting at that's really true and really key is Kubrick like Hitchcock understands that fear falls into two buckets that are time related shock which is present tense uh, and dread which is future tense something that's going to happen that you suspect is going to happen yeah, that's continuous. bad for you then of course Suspense. if you want the past yeah. uh that is a different kind of movie because the what the name we have for something bad in the past happened is regret and that's a drama but when it comes to horror you're basically shock in the present tense or suspense dread in the future tense and he actually has a hand on the rudder of the balance exactly between right. those two things. Whereas I think mm -hmm. most people making horror movies don't even think about, they don't even talk in the terms we just talked about. Like they don't, they don't vibe with that. They don't think of that as a meter or a lever that mm -hmm. they're pulling. And I think Kubrick and Hitchcock both understood that shock and suspense are different things. And you actually have to think about 
the balance between those things. When yeah, to employ when to them. employ each, because, yeah, or you get better results and because they keep it in mind. Yeah, because compare that to a lot of modern day horrors and stuff like that. I watched like many months ago. Uh, I forget what the movie was. It was the movie where it's like um, oh god. But fuck, they they like smile really big or yeah. something like, and it's just one shock after all. After sorry, another. my allergies are killing me. If you can hear it's it, it's truth at home. or dare or whatever. Truth or dare, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear it. Yeah, it's just like it's just constant shock, and it's just like you become not shocked. Agreed. Anymore. So understanding the itemization of that kind of thing and when to employ it is truly the director's. Like if they can nail that, they're a good director. in the horror genre for sure. Uh, but also, as you said, and it can't be underlined enough, like Hitchcock. <laughs> Hitchcock was worse, though. Dude, Hitchcock was such a piece of shit. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google, like, Alfred Hitchcock was a piece of shit. And the big stories yeah. will come up. Dude, like... Uh, He's also very verbal about it. Like, he Well, apologize. he would have gotten canceled today. At least today. Kubrick apologized a few times. No, but you know? Hitchcock, like, rises to the level of a sexual predator by our standards mm-hmm. today but not only that there like to get the footage he wanted in the birds he had an actress film for like 18 hours with them just throwing birds live birds at her it's like animal cruelty and she didn't consent or know that's what was gonna happen and like there's a shot in the birds where you see a bird go right by her eye and cut her on the eye that's real that bird could have blinded her they were just throwing birds at people like, it's just a piece of shit and uh, yeah. he would groom young starlets <laughs> to have these weird that's asexual horrible. relationships with him but anyway uh, I'm ready to get out of it if you are, mainly because more snot is falling out of my head than any time I can recall mm. in the recent past. Mm. Um, but I wanted to shotgun some final points, um, which yeah, will give me. you time to gather any if you have some. Uh, point. You could obviously climb to the top of the hedges in the hedge maze and get to the top and look out and see the way out or walk to the edge of the maze on the top. And just generally, Jack's really fucking stupid to not figure out what his son figures out, which is you could follow your own footsteps back to the entrance. Like the fact that Jack freezes to death in the hedge maze. And I know in the book it's a topiary garden that comes to life and they didn't do it for the CG because the CG was lacking. But man... Jack freezes to death like a fucking idiot. Like there's like four or five ways I could have thought of how to easily get out of the hedge maze. He's holding an axe. He didn't even try to chop through one of the hedges. Yeah, the axe. That's what I (laughs) thought. But also you can tell from looking at it that you could climb up it pretty easily. Just climb out. Mm -hmm. All right. Second point. In the maze's defense, yeah. in the maze's defense, uh, the the people who actually shot the sequence, uh, it was a people got lost. They like put up signs and everything. People got lost. Luckily, they had radios and stuff, so yeah. they could figure it out. But it was like a big time suck. People, that maze is horrible. Horrible. Like the crew would actually be like, Apparently. "I'm stuck in the fucking maze again." Like I don't know where I'm I bringing am, coffee, and I, but is, I'm, I'm carrying a yeah. light. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, also the. Sh- Uh, We have gone this whole time without saying it. We just have to say it. Uh, Another huge thing that the film rests upon is Jack Nicholson's performance. And people who only know old Jack Nicholson might think of him as like a little over the top or have not researched when he was at his prime. This is a prime. This is like one flew over the cuckoo's nest status. Like he's swinging for an Oscar. Jack Nicholson's performance in this is varied and deep and meticulous and will fucking 
it blows you out of the water. Like it's like yeah. Clooney and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Like I'm, I was just transfixed by Jack Nicholson the whole time, and I especially wanted to point out to modern horror directors who might be hearing this. That one long shot of Jack just staring into the middle distance when you clearly know because of context that he's hearing demonic whispers in his head would have been completely undercut if you added sound effects of overlapping whispers or people saying, kill, kill your family, kill your family. Like so much more effective than the 99% of horror movies today. When you want to show someone being possessed, you have a slow push on their face and you hear a sound effect of voices chattering. Fuck that. Let the actor just show it. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking, yeah. Like, speaking of actors' yeah. faces, Danny does a very good Tony Collette horror face. I feel like they have a similar vibe to their horror faces. Mm. Um, mm. He takes his first shot of bourbon at the exact midpoint of the film, which I think bolsters the idea that it's a, an addiction metaphor. At least one level. Do you of also it. notice that the face that he makes when he takes his first shot is the face that he makes when he's when dead he's and frozen. evil. Oh, when he's dead. His and... eyes go up oh. and he has he shows his lower teeth. That's yeah. act- that's really cool. Um, yeah. That might be all I got. Oh, I I just just cuz I saw it recently I loved it. I think there's some lighthouse uh overlap. He breaks the snowcat and the radio. You're not going anywhere. But also <laughs> it's like Shelley Duvall does the work, all the work to maintain the, because we see her in the boiler room. We never see him go to the boiler room. She does all the work that he presumably cares so much about, the social contract. Well, he is like, no, I have to commune with the lighthouse. Like, I have to be in here writing, which, of course, turns out to be he's doing nothing. Um, I have no idea why I brought that up. I like the lighthouse. (laughs) Um, yeah. <laughs> two final points. Uh, they relate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess two and a half or three, depending on how you count it. One is Shelley Duvall's final act in the film that's strategic is to go to sleep, is to like sleep on it. She locks him in the pantry and decides to sleep on it. And the next thing that happens mm-hmm. is her son wakes her up screaming red drum. And from that, With and knife. then all hell yeah. breaks loose and it's climax action from that point forward in real time. So my question is. For someone who's so meticulous, I do think Kubrick is at root a misogynist. And I don't, I'm not, that's a spectrum. I'm not saying he's Mm -hmm. the worst guy that ever, he's not Tucker Max or whatever. But I do think he overlooks women and minimizes women. And I think it's on display here. And I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, Yeah. Shelley Duvall is kind of fumbled at the end. And I think it's the weakest part of the movie because so much of the dread came from me empathizing with her being a very realistically grounded person who is trapped in an abusive relationship that's getting out of hand Mm -hmm. and trying to push back and set boundaries, but not being comfortable with that and finally making the decision that I have to separate from this person. And that's so fucking ripe. uh, As a metaphor, like so that it seemed like a huge waste that, her arc doesn't mm-hmm. arc. She escapes through Danny's cleverness and her husband dies. So in that sense, their marriage is annulled. But if you know what I mean, and I know you do know what I mean, there is no traditional final beat to her arc, it, which implies to me that the no. filmmaker was not thinking about the story through her experience. Um, no. And I, he think- I think... He was thinking about how... Like Jack 
Jack was going to have a resolution, not how she was going to have like a counterpoint. Yes. And I, it's really not just for the sake of like girl power or wanting to be a white knight feminist or what have you. It's mathematically true. Like I think Abe will back me up on this. There was a lot to mine in that arc and it's actually disappointing that there's no final beat to that arc that Shelley Duvall doesn't like wrap up in any notable way or comment on what she was going through. I agree. Um, And I will just say that I think the more realistic and hilarious version of this movie would have been that when he, sticks his head through the hole to say, here's Johnny and pauses. She fucking stabs him right in the eye. She's holding a giant knife and he is putting (laughs) his weapon down to jut his face into the room and go, Oh, hello there. She should have stabbed him in the goddamn teeth. dude. (laughs) And I believe in real life. She would have like, I believe someone in that position would have stabbed him in the face in that moment realistically oh, yeah. yeah, and go for the eyes yeah. we're trained and it would have been super yeah. funny to see that happen but we got what we got <laughs> yeah we got what we got uh i will say that her performance in that uh is absolutely captain oh yeah and it's uh, why i also yeah i pull the and i don't know much how much is her and how much is how? absolute I hate this. Yeah, you you can but see both. Something very clear about that sequence is, is that I've never seen another actor. I've never seen an actor portray "I hate this" better than Shelley yeah. Duvall in Tony this Collette and Hereditary comes close, which is why I bring it up. Um, but because both movies employ the tactic of bunch of stuff, bunch of stuff, hard cut to super close of the actress's face showing you what it really means to look scared. (laughs) The horror. And and in both cases, I think it's a slightly slowed down shot, the close of the face. And in both cases, they're like shaking their head a little bit. Like they can't contain Mm -hmm. how much they want to say no. (laughs) But yes, I think you're right. Shelley Duvall, the, the amazing thing about that bathroom scene is you can see both layers. You can see an actress pretending to be scared that she'll die, but you can also see an actress truly just not wanting to do what she's doing, just not enjoying yeah. being there doing that. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to say honestly because there's other sequences like when she's got she's sneaking around with the bat yeah. uh, on the stairwell. Like her performance, there's like something wrong. Yes, you know, like. Like you're like, this isn't this feel like I know what you mean when you said earlier about the bad acting, because it's like it seems like something was told to her before or something like that, that she's acting out of sorts. Yes, like she's she's so broken already where it's just like this. She seems disoriented a lot. Yeah. And I think that that is probably reminiscent of Kubrick's like, all right, let's do another take like that. I'm a thousand times I'm a, and just telling her straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how, you know, how uh. can you do it? Well, you can do it this way. I thought I did that. Now you're not doing it that, you know, like these are the comments that he's giving her, which is something you never do to an actor uh, because it, it deflates yeah. their self, their sense of. Oh, worth. and he would famously and, tell PAs like a PA would go. Is that hard? Do you need a chair for the break and shit like that? And he'd go, don't get her a chair. Don't empathize with Shelly. Like he, that was a direction he gave to his staff. Don't sympathize with Shelly. That's really Mm -hmm. fucked up, dude. It's really fucked up. Uh, It does. It did create this performance. I guess. Whether (laughs) up to you, if it's worth it is up to whether or not. I would argue you you can't even prove that that's what did it. There's a chance 
that if he had just very meticulously and narrowly described what he wanted, I want you to be scared, but also disoriented. She could have given you an identical performance just by acting hard. Like we'll never know because he didn't give her that chance it's to impossible. try. <laughs> it's literally impossible yeah. because you can't do. And you can't ever once. determine once and for all what was the factor in a performance that gave mm-hmm. it the whatever. No. Yeah. No. And what take was it? Was it because right. like I know that if I was an actor and it was like how many takes did you do? I did forty takes of that. Which one did you do? Use. I use the second. You'd be one. like, you motherfucker. You motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like, if we did that, I would also be the motherfucker. I've made a lot of stuff. And like, I just cut a thing where I was like, there was a whole thing where like you were dialing in, like you were doing a performance and you were dialing it in. And uh, you're like, nah, I don't like that because this, that, and that. And then you did another version. And you're like, I like that a little bit better. But then, and you did it, you ended up doing like 18 versions of it. You directed yourself, I'll say. But uh, I, I ended up using like the second one. Right. So the one that you were like, I like that better. It's technically a waste of time, but how could you it. know ahead of time? Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what you're going for, man. <laughs> you know, like this feels the funniest to me. And we're just doing comedy. Was it the mayor voice that I? It was a it was a mayor. I think line, it's yeah. because the mayor is gonna be a staple of that show if we continue it and I want him dialed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I realized he's half I think you got he's there. halfway between Chunky Bubbles, which is a character Paul F. Tompkins does, and the com mm-hmm. the camp commandant from Malcolm in the Middle, who is a guy that I just I love that guy. <laughs> You're also an enigma because as you said earlier when you were talking about how like Sometimes people just want to like come to set and just like, uh, like, like they don't think about like when I was talking about the unions and you were Mm -hmm. talking about like sometimes like you're costing the, uh, the production so much just by this random bullshit. And it's a personal issue how much you let that affect you or you care about that. Right. You're an enigma because I've gotten comments, uh, from people who don't know you working on sets with you. Like, uh, you know, people who would be like, what's with this actor, man? He's just standing by camera, but like, not like he's like on his phone, but he's just waiting for like, everyone else is over at crafty enjoying themselves, posting on like Instagram, doing normal stuff that you do. You're like, well, because if I'm already here, it doesn't waste the time to get me, you know? And it's just like, I remember Cruz going like, that is amazing. Like it almost made one of my production designers cry. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like how selfless. Well, you that and is. I have it's always like tag teamed fucking everything. And I have yeah. often said, I identify more with the crew than the cast of most sets I'm on. I tend to like vibe mm-hmm. with them. I love my actor friends, but you know what I mean? I'm in that headspace, which a career actor who's only an actor is not crew. People all crew people, and I say I identify more with the crew in this regard, you are thinking about the reality of the shoot from above, wondering whether we'll get our day done in time and worried about all the pieces. Actors traditionally don't worry about that. I do, because I've been in both worlds, and it's Mm -hmm. in my nature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, And the fact that you have empathy shows that you're like, yeah, I could enjoy myself increment uh, like notice or we can all right go now. home or 18 I can minutes earlier feeling good. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly it's uh thank you i really yeah, appreciate like it's, that it's that kind of yeah absolutely i i think it, it goes a like it's something to be said about like that was a conscious effort made by you no one necessarily does that and it's not a 
the job of anyone to ask for that. And therefore, when Spielberg does things like not even ask for it, but demands it yeah. and also like creates an air of mystique around why he's doing it so that no one gets wise to it. It comes off as seriously unnecessary. I just lack the... Uh, yeah. It is also misogynistic yeah. and bad, but I do think that there is a reason that he believes that it's necessary and it's not bullshit. Yes. Even though the methodology in which he employed to do so is wrong and should never be I replicated. care about art so much, but I care about people more, and I don't think Kubrick does. <laughs> I think Absolutely. he actually thinks no, art is more and important I don't than people. Uh, and it's yeah. funny to me, the sheer, I think neither you or I have the sheer confidence it would take to be on a set like 2001 A Space Odyssey and go, I don't like the way this white void is lit. Rip it all down and rebuild it. Rip and it then the producer down. representing the people who gave you the money to do this comes and goes, you can't afford that. It'll take you like 150% over budget. And you go, I'm doing it anyway. Fuck you. And they go, why? Why? What gives you the right? And you go, because my art is so important. It's more important than your petty concerns. <laughs> and more importantly, yeah. what are you going to do? Stop the movie? Yeah. <laughs> well, we were at, remember it's, when we uh, saw Spielberg talk at USC and he told a story about Kubrick calling Spielberg from yes. one wing of his mansion because he was choking on a sandwich and he couldn't remember the number for his butler and he's like call my butler and tell him to come into the other wing and yeah he thought he, was, he might pass out <laughs> yeah. in seconds so he's like make sure call Martha I'm choking <laughs> and my house is so yeah, big she can't hear widow. me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she like and she ended up, he ended up doing it and she arrived and he had just finished. He's choking. like, I'm fine. <laughs> like he was just like, oh, it's all right. But it could have been bad. <laughs> I never want to live in a house so big that my staff could find me choked to death and no one heard me choking. <laughs> Man, the way we're all going to go is going to always be hilarious. Like if there is an afterlife, the way we all go is going to be hilarious to each of us. <laughs> I way. hope. Because you're like, eh. yeah, it's like that. Nor it's like that Norm Macdonald joke about like, I don't know what happens after your diet, but I know the first thing that happens to you is you are found. <laughs> That's a good joke. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway. That's yeah, it. Yeah. So they had a wonderful, they had a wonder, uh, there's a on Kubrick and an on, uh, there's like an on director series and the one with Kubrick and Spielberg, they asked like the same questions to him. And there's a great back and forth, even though it's through the interviewer of their relationship. And it's like, I find it's not only very fascinating because they're both like obviously titans of this industry, but also uh, hilarious, full of little uh, stories yeah, like, like that, where it's just like, these are two old men just enjoying the ends of their life. Yeah. You know, obviously Spielberg's younger, uh, but like he's enjoying the end of his life, just having a good time. It's interesting AI, though, it's like watching you know? Herzog talk to Kinski because like it's come right. out now that Kinski, who has passed, was like uh, molested his own daughters and stuff. Like <clears throat> Kinski was truly a psychopathic despicable madman and he was good friends with Werner Herzog who from what I can tell is a genuinely like he's an oddball by most of our standards which is why we find him funny but he's a thoughtful artist who doesn't really well Fitzgeraldo people died he will go too far in the yeah. pursuit of art but if you know what I mean he's not Kinski he's not like a wild animal he's not 
He's not like, I want to no, play Russian roulette. No, he doesn't have the crazy right abusive tendencies. And I feel like there's a similar vibe when you see them talk where you're like, Spielberg, how are you friends with Kubrick? You're kind of normal. It's like Herzog, yeah, how are you friends with Kinski? Yeah. You're kind of normal. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's also another fascinating documentary is just the Kinski. Oh, God. Friends who have held guns but to like, each other's head multiple times in real life. That's a yeah, weird situation. And like like going into battle and like trying to create danger and like releasing, releasing like they had a plot to like release a, like a flu virus amongst the staff. So they couldn't quit and go home. Like they'd be quarantined and they may as well work on the movie. Yeah. It was something weird about that. that. Yeah. They they just have, they joked about it. They didn't do it, but it's just like, you guys are unhinged and like enablers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they would do shit like, yeah. Kinski would jokingly pull a loaded gun. And Herzog would, quote unquote, jokingly hold the barrel to his head and be like, okay, then Mm -hmm. this is that. (laughs) It's like, are you friends or are you some kind of performance art? (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. That reminds me. The uh, there's another one of these, too, is that uh, Kubrick shut down the set for a single day of like 200 uh, because I think it was Scatman Crothers. Uh, He came on set uh, for his first day. And he brought, he had one of those handheld chess things, like uh, the chess uh-huh. set. And as soon as Kubrick saw it, he was like, oh, you play chess? Are you any good? And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty good. And he's like, let's play chess. <laughs> and then they down. played chess all day. And Kubrick won all except one game. And and I think it was Scatman Crothers said, or, or like, why'd you do that? Like you just, and he's like, I haven't played chess with like a good opponent for a long, long time. And you're like pretty damn good. And he's like, well, why'd <laughs> you shut like, set down to humiliate me all day? You're a dick. He's like, and I, <laughs> my guess is that like Kubrick probably already thought that like the day was a wash for, for XYZ reason. reasons that we'll right. never know. And it doesn't, the matter. light wasn't right. But, so uh, he used it as an excuse to fuck the day. But he, yeah. Just yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the kind of shit we're talking about. These are tour sons of bitches. <laughs> people shouldn't get killed to make yeah. your movies, and we value movies very oh, highly. So, get your shit together, Kubrick. <laughs> get your shit together. I'm putting yep. you on notice. <laughs> Coming for you, Stanley. <laughs> uh, do you want to segue to the final? Yeah. Bit? So that's it. It is it. And that leads us to our final segment, which will be exceedingly short for this first episode, The Stand. Where we give a short short review, review, but then also I think something that will become more important as the show continues is like, where does this stand relative to the stuff we've covered in the past? So the reason I said it'll be extra short is it's the best one we've seen so far. I got to be honest. I think it's yeah, top of the heap. Here's the problem. <laughs> it's top of the heap so far. And unfortunately uh, for my, for, for my money, uh, I don't think it'll get much better than this, but I'm, Welcome oh, to be surprised. I, and I'm sure I'll find many, many things that are engaging. I wanted to this. set a high bar for and our King's rubric, work. but I think there are things I can already think of things I would put above the shining for sure. So that'll be fun. And that's yeah. for later. Um, but my capsule review is 90% out of a hundred. I, I oh, wish Shelley Duvall's I, we didn't character had an ending to her arc. That's about it. Mm-hmm. 
No, no, no. You can do it in terms of just just the just the what we see on screen, taking out all of yeah. the stories. I'm not trying to set up a movie. system. I said 90% out of 100 as like a holistic way to say it. I won't do that every time. You don't right. have to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it's <clears throat> it's memorable and quoted so often for a reason. And I think the reason is because it is uh, for XYZ reasons uh, and we can demystify it, you know, more and more, you know, in the comments if people want to engage. But uh, ultimately, I think it's because the combo of King's ideology with Kubrick's uh, absolute resilience to the goals of his particular brand of filmmaking and employing all the artisans and actors uh, in this movie, I really think that it, there's a reason this is one of the top films of all time and it's regarded as such. And it is namely because it's a fucking, it's entertaining. It's engaging. It's mesmerizing. It's it's very disturbing and scary. It ramps up to a horror climax that stands with even current horror masterpieces in terms of how upset you are while it's unfolding. Good horror. Very good. <laughs> it, it is, yeah, it is what it is. I'm sure there's much, there's many horror films that many people will regard as like, that's better. Like, or like you were saying a little earlier, it, it's kind of boring. All true. Uh, it's, All true. I would argue it's kind of boring for 45 minutes and then you realize, oh, it's it's going old school. It's doing that thing where it's boring mm. for 45 minutes because by the end, it's going to be brutal as fuck. And it is. So I'm fine with that. And it's not, I mean, there's only one person dies or well, two people counting Jack and it's not gory, but what it is, is the main thing you really need in horror, which is humans saying off-putting, confusing, upsetting, aggressive, disturbing, hurtful things to one another. That's, that's the heart of horror. We dress it up with the, like the ultimate releases and I kill you. And it's kind of a release because now you're out of the movie and I'll stop saying horrible shit to you. But the texture of a lot of what upsets us in horror are the moments where it's just the buildup, the horrible threats being made, the suppositions, the way that it's confusing and disorienting and the shining hits at every level in those regards. I just want people to know if you haven't seen it, like it's no hostile, it's no saw. But it's super fucking scary. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think it's does that by creeping into your skin a little bit. Uh, and I like that. I like that about uh, King. And I like that about this movie. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, you can support us at patreon.com slash small beans. We do exist because you help us, so thank you. Uh, Please, if you are not in a spot where you feel like or can afford to patronize us with the monies, uh, it's very helpful if you go on iTunes and rate us or review us. Other things I should say? Oh, I'm on Twitter at (laughs) Swim underscore Corp. Abe's at Abe the Mighty. That's all. Mm -hmm. That's most of the stuff. Our logo's by Michael Vincent Bramley. And we hope you like the new show. Give us feedback. It's not too late to tailor the format or what have you. Yeah. That's more or less it. I can't wait to hear what musical stings and shit you come up for this. I feel like it's up your alley. Uh, well, I think I'm going to do a thing where it's like uh, takes the the sound of the movies that are relative to the titles 
and like do some kind of interview. I do think these episodes should start with an audio snippet from the trailer of the thing we're talking about, yeah. like Gamefully does. Like I, I would like to of to have heard some shining shit at the top of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a but good I mean, idea. I mean, we for like the see. segments, I, w- I wonder what you do. I, I like, I totally trust you and I'm just excited to hear what you come up with. Well, it'll probably just be yeah. fart sounds, so don't I was get thinking probably that single high piano note that is every horror trailer now. Ding! Mm, well, now I can't do, well, I thought you were going to do the typewriter sound, say the typewriter sound, and I had thought of that already. Oh. And now I can't do it because I just said it, so I... I well, yeah, we need some kind of intro theme and we need a sounds to separate the segments, I would say. These, this is this is work for an email. Is it? Oh, I say, I don't know. Hey, it's fine. This is our how podcasts work. are so important. Fuck these people and their time. Right. They'll that's wait true. for us. We should we play wasting everyone's time. And that's we should fine. play chess right now. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh <laughs> Uh, how awesome is it a detail that in Holleran's house he has like a beautiful Nubian ebony princess above his bed and across from him so that when and he's in bed across. he can still look at a beautiful nude woman. Yeah, I was reading about that because I was like, what is that? Is are they just is this a joke? Like, but uh, apparently that was like a according to film historians that was like a thing at the time like the that was uh kubrick's attempt to be like yeah he's just like a normal guy you know how normal <laughs> guys have a couple tasteful nudes up? yeah like a uh, uh quagmire style <laughs> yeah it's 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 definitely right there uh they are both Gorgeous. gorgeous. It's, <laughs> it's just not what you expect out of just a like a dude just sitting uh, just in his a, bed with his PJs on. A very square on, just postcard shot. You're like, oh yeah, porno poster. Nice. <laughs> yeah. You're like, all right, all right, cool. <laughs> all right, let's get out of here, my friend. All right, my man. All right, bye everyone. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.